Welcome to Pondcast. This podcast is sponsored by Neighbourhood Fibre Company. Neighbourhood Fibre Company is a small, black woman-owned yarn company in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. Inspired by her urban surroundings, Carida Collins founded Neighbourhood Fibre Company to bring her love of saturated colour and cityscapes to the world. Twelve years later, Neighbourhood Fibre Company offers a vivid and vibrant lineup of hand-dyed yarns and fibres. Each skein of yarn and braid of fibre is lovingly hand-dyed in one of over 65 colours, and each one of those colours is named after a neighbourhood of Baltimore or the nearby Washington, D.C. Find Neighbourhood Fibre Company yarns and fibre at your local yarn shop or online at neighbourhoodfiberco.com. Hello! And welcome to Pomcast, the podcast brought to you by Pom Pom Quarterly. I'm Lydia Gluck and I'm here as I am, not quite monthly at the moment, but frequently with Sophie Scott. Hello! And we're allowed to say Happy New Year because this is the first podcast of 2019. So welcome, happy knitting. Happy knitting. We hope that 2019 has treated you well so far. It's a nice sunny day here in London. Um, We have moved office. Not sure whether we've talked about that yet on the podcast. So we have, so it's just happened just before December. So we're very happy to be in a new office, not too far away from where we were before. Um, UK, branch was still in London. You might have heard of it. <laughs> and uh, we're recording in the offices today, so it might be a little bit echoey, but um, we'll have a tweak of the sound levels, so certainly won't hamper any of your enjoyment of the news, the reviews, uh, the titillating facts and information we're going to bring you today. So what can you expect from this episode? Welcome back, if you're indeed coming back for a, a listen again, and welcome if this is your first listen to the podcast. We'll be chatting about the magazine Pom Pom Quarterly, our new issue, and all the news that goes with uh, making a missing magazine. Uh, we also have Tell and Tell, where we share what we've been up to, what we've been knitting. Text files are a word-based fact segment. A detective show, Indeed. if you will. Uh, top three. And of course, uh, all the news in the knitting world. Indeed. So we hope that you're excited to listen, whether this is your first time, as you said, or whether uh, you are a seasoned pomcat. Mm-hmm. Pomcat is what we call our listeners. Indeed. <laughs> But before we go to our regular podcast format, there's something very important that we wanted to, uh, to talk about. So those of you who are active on Instagram, um, possibly other social needs, but sure. for sure Instagram, um, will likely have seen the discussion around racism, diversity and inclusivity that's been a large part of our feeds for the last few months. You may also have seen the statement Pom Pom posted on Instagram on the 11th of January, uh, where we stated our intentions and made it clear uh, that we're listening, learning, and starting to take the necessary steps to undo the pain in our community, even if that means challenging ourselves. And we wanted to use our voices here too, because indeed that's what we're doing on the podcast. We wanted to take some time to say we're grateful to those who've been leading this conversation, and we're still listening and learning and doing the work. We want Pom Pom to feel welcoming to anyone who wants to join us, either here for the podcast, in print, or in digital, and online. We know that we can do better, and we value all the feedback to help us to do that. We've already heard from some of you who want to see more body diversity and other intersectionalities too. We want to be held to a high standard, and we hope our listeners and readers do too. Pom Pom has always tried to be inclusive and diverse as a core value, but we know that this is a continuous process, and there's much more work left for us to do. We have learned a lot, as I'm sure many of you have, 
from those who've been speaking out. You can find them on Instagram as A Stitch to Wear, Ocean by the Sea, The Colour Mustard, and Sucrita, S-U dot K-R-I-T-A, in particular. Although, of course, there are so many others who've shared their stories and knowledge. Most of all, we want to emphasise how important this conversation is in working towards an equitable community, even when, and perhaps especially when, it feels uncomfortable. The discomfort is confirmation that we're growing, and that gives us hope. It's so important that this conversation is led by, and primarily features, the voices and stories of Black and Indigenous people of colour, which you may have seen abbreviated as BIPOC. But they can't do it alone. As white women, our job now is to listen carefully, acknowledge, reflect, learn, amplify, and engage in active anti-racist practice. If you are UK-based, you may have seen the acronym BAME, uh, which stands for Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, which is used in a very similar way to BIPOC. Those of you who are white, we encourage you to read White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo. We're reading it as a team, as well as expanding our studio library to include more books on race. Also important reading is the new blog, Unfinished Object, which you can find online, unfinishedobject.com, which has been started by Sakuta, Ocean, Karina and Brooks, who we mentioned previously with their Instagram handles. They and we recommend Leila F. Saad's Me and White Supremacy Workbook, and Where Change Started's The Anti-Racism Starter Kit as essential tools in working through your own understanding. We owe it to each other to keep learning as much as we can and to use this knowledge to hold each other to the highest standard. Lastly, we remind you to be respectful when you enter these online spaces that are held for and by B-I-P-O-C-B-A-M-E people. For example, make sure to thoroughly research and read before you ask any questions. The resources are there, and a lot of time and labour has gone into them. If you ask additional questions, you're asking for more labour, and it's important to pause and make sure the question you're asking hasn't already been answered as part of the resources available to you. The show notes for this episode have a short introductory reading list that we think might be helpful. And of course, audiobooks are always the best plan for maximum knitting and learning multitasking. Thanks for listening. seem sort of a departure from our usual podcast format um, but really for us it's important to kind of acknowledge that there is no separation between what may seem the light-hearted nature of the podcast and uh, the work that needs to be done in making the knitting community the best it can be. Uh, it might seem a change of subject to now talk about the magazine and issue 28 which has just come out but all of this is linked like I said um, the work we do with the magazine, the people we choose to work with, how we represent that is all part of the work we're trying to put in to make um, a knitting community where everyone feels respected and represented and um, the best version of uh, a community, yeah, a community. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, as we said on our, the aforementioned Instagram post where we sort of started our mission 
or sort of um, explicitly spoke about our mission statement with this regard. We said that we we want everyone to feel welcome, mm-hmm. and we know that in order for people to feel welcome, things need to change. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we are we are working behind the scenes and here. Yeah. Um, so with the our voices. Vehicle, yeah. The literal vehicle you see that of that right now is the podcast, and obviously the magazine. Um, well, we hope many of you are listening, or maybe you're enjoying a copy right now. Yeah, so issue uh, 28, our spring issue, has been arriving worldwide. Worldwide. Springing into letterboxes, springing into knitters' arms, we hope. Indeed, and this most recent issue has more crochet than we've had for a while, Indeed, that's fair to say. Indeed, many of you have always spoke about how you'd love to see more crochet in pom-pom, and we totally agree. So there's no less than three patterns uh, which are crochet in issue 28. Yeah, so we've got um, we've got a top, we've got a kind of cover up, and some great tassels, amazing tassels, and um, some lovely fingerless mitts. Indeed. Um, do you have a favourite from this issue, Lydia? Well, I have chosen two favourites. Mm-hmm. One of them is Ginkka Fight, which is by Emily Green, mm-hmm. who we've worked with uh, a couple of times by now. She's a wonderful designer, and Ginkka Fight is a really beautiful. Um, Summery t-shirt, or well, springy, springy summery, <laughs> spring slash summer t-shirt, depending where you live sure. and how um, confusingly warm it might be because <laughs> global warming. Yeah, and it's got really beautiful details, like lovely turned up uh, sort of short sleeves, kind of t-shirty, yeah, little, little turned up cuffs, uh, beautiful lace detailing, which echoes the shape of a, um, a ginkgo tree leaf. So that's on my uh, two-knit list. And my other favourite is Water Clover, which I know you've also chosen. I do love that one. That's another one with crochet numbers. Uh, yeah, so Water Clover is by Issa Caterpillan. Or maybe more accurately, Issa Caterpillan. I don't know. Excellent. And yeah, it's a lovely... Uh, I was going to say it's a lovely Water Clover. Yeah. Which it is! But it's also a lovely crochet top. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of quite kind of cropped sleeves. I think I can imagine myself throwing this over uh, dresses and things at the beach. One mm-hmm. day we'll go to the beach again. <laughs> Uh, lovely. Well, I'm going to give you a shout out to the cover star, because you're not going to, if you're going to be modest, which is uh, Woodwardia, which is designed by, oh wait, Lydia Gluck. <laughs> yeah, nice my, work. my first, my, one of my now more infrequent forays into designing. Mm. Um, but I'm actually wearing the second version of it that I... Oh wait, what this thing <laughs> That I made, so... Um, oh, everyone else in the palm office is uh, currently knitting one, so it's hit, hit a chord with that stropper cord even? With us uh, as knitters, because um, I remember the conception of your idea. You're like, I just want a really simple jumper, and uh, a simple jumper you did create. I did with a little little fetching raglan detail. Yeah, so it looks like a little a little sprouting bud or little leaves <laughs> of sprouting bud on the raglan. Uh, it's a very uh, satisfying and quick knit. So uh, kudos, well done. Oh, thanks, man. No worries, woman. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so any of you who were at Unravel Festival of late few weekends ago, uh, you will have seen issue 28 and perhaps some of the samples mm-hmm. which we were there with. We escorted them to the show and allowed them to meet and greet. Well, the lovely thing about Unravel, which I remember obviously meeting everyone, it was the sunniest Unravel I've ever experienced. Like, we were walking around in t-shirts and, uh, well, a festival in the middle of February in England is famously going to be rather chilly. But it was glorious, and uh, thank you again to Unravel and all the staff behind the scenes who are fantastic and supportive in helping us. Uh, really lovely to see so many of you 
pop by the stand and say hi. Uh, shout out to Ali, who brings us the mini eggs every year. Big shout out to Ali. I joked, I was like, every time I see you, it's like this Pavlovian response. I'm like, hmm, if that's a mini egg. <laughs> well, she's instilled in us now. <laughs> in fact, we have some coasters in the office that are like large buttons that right. we realised are perfect for arranging mini eggs. Because there's little holes in the coasters to mimic the holes in a button, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. if you were to sew a button on. Everything's on trend and theme in the home office. <laughs> exactly. Um, we just uh, sit on giant balls of wool. <laughs> yeah, no beanbags here. Yeah, yeah. We also did our quiz night on the Friday night. Let's get quizzical. And indeed, many of you did. I did everyone was very kind of, I said rowdy, but as rowdy as a knitting pub quiz gets, everyone was like very enthused. I don't know what I was expecting as Christmas to kind of lord <laughs> over some silence and be like, now this is a question. But everyone was like, quite jazzy. They were, it was quite giddy, maybe, I guess. You giddy, know, that's the word. With yeah. all of the fun of being uh, at the festival, hanging out with yarn birds, getting to be excited about wool around people who are also excited about wool. Yeah, I mean, but either way, uh, the quiz night was, I mean, it was a triumph. And yeah. there were many snacks. Yeah, and everybody, everyone was a winner. We had uh, prizes for all teams, so that was good. And um, thanks for everyone who came along. Also, on with the Palm on the Road agenda, we'll be heading to Edinburgh Yarn Festival from the 21st to the 23rd of March. Um, we'll be on the Loop Stand, who are very kindly hosting us with the Volume 6 and Issue 28 Trunk Show. We'll also be signings with Emily Bowden and Bristol Ivy. Um, uh, and Fiona Alice, who wrote Take Heart. So, uh, plenty of Palm Pals. Lots of beautiful wool in Edinburgh. It's always a great festival, we love it. Um, so we'll see you there. Tell and tell, where we tell each other and uh, you listener types um, our making projects. Fancy, Indeed. fancy. Indeed. What, so what have you been up to? It's been a while since we caught up on a tell and tell. We interviewed Eli last episode and he hadn't brought his knitting, so... Uh, <sighs> when will he learn? When will he learn? <laughs> well, yeah. he already do. He hasn't got his knit hat, so... It's uh, true. If he's not knitting by the time I see him yeah. next... Well, I finished my Woodwardia, both for the photo shoot and Woodwardia the second, <laughs> the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> um... And the sequel version that I'm wearing now, I made in uh, some Sawkill Farm uh, worsted weight, which also, yeah, worsted, you know, it's like a heavy DK, whatever, it worked for the pattern just great, mm-hmm. which I had bought um, at Brooklyn General when I was there post Rhinebeck. And I'm enjoying this very much. I also made a St. James hat mm-hmm. by Francesca Hughes for my brother for Christmas, which he was delighted with. I made it in the the same yarn as she designed it in the John Arbon Devonia DK in a lovely kind of pine evergreen green uh, and my brother Morgan said that he feels like a cool stylish fisherman when he wears it which is I think the look he was going for so I want to thank Frankie aka Francesca Hughes for creating the perfect hat um, for me to give as a gift to my brother but I kind of bought one myself as well I'm going to be a cool fisherman also made a bunch of snowshoe socks. Nice. Not that that's any news because I feel like last time I probably said that as well. That's the pattern from Emily's book uh, that we published, Knits by Winter. Excellent. Which I'm finding to be an excellent way to use up sock yarn as you hold it double and you get 
interesting interplays between different colours and depths of colour and just a really fun pattern that creates super squishy socks. Lastly, I finally finished sewing my uh, hatty dress, which is a pattern by Merchant and Mills. It is hat. <laughs> it's a bit like a hat. <laughs> but except that it's not like a hat because oh, it covers my body. Well, it's like a hat for my body. <laughs> and socks are hats for feet. So in a way, aren't they all hats? Isn't, uh, what's German for socks? No, mittens. Handschuhe. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> so I made um, a dress. A body hat mm-hmm. that um, is. Uh, I'm really pleased with this. First time I've done like a line. I've got a lined bodice mm-hmm. um, and did a little bit of hand sewing on uh, sewing the bodice. There. Anyway, it was just a very enjoyable project. And how about you? Cool. Finished. Uh, one thing I finished a little while ago, which I was hoping to finish with Ryan Beck, but didn't, was my Mumue. Mumu mm-hmm. maybe, which is from issue 27. Uh, it's patterned by Cerulean Rose. And you may recall it in the magazine, it's sort of like a purpley brown. Yeah. It has big batwing sleeves and like it's quite cropped, the, the table detail at the, uh, the bottom cropped area. Um, <laughs> and a big v neck. I loved it. Such a great, satisfying project. Like very easy to go through, sort of stocking stitch and like big sleeves. Not only do I feel elegant and dramatic in them, they're probably really quick to knit. So it's quite a lot of decreasing quite quickly. <gasps> so they get faster and faster. Yeah, I found it very satisfying, which is what I love about project. Um, also used the fibre company Arcadia, which is used in the project, uh, you know, the recommended yarn. It was great, very silky, a bit luxurious, probably something a little bit more, uh, yeah, silky than what I've been using previously. I've been favouring more rustic yarn. It's nice to have a foray in that and have almost like an evening knitwear Ooh. outfit. So I wore it on Christmas Day, but very slinky. <laughs> uh, remember Christmas? That happened. <laughs> and, uh, also, I finished my Woodwardia. As you said, it's, um, everyone's got Woodwardia fever. Ah! I'm trying to think of another, like, it's like you're gonna knit it. Woodwardia. Um, <laughs> there's a whole, uh, segment of that. And I used, uh, the Jerum Nashura. I'm in the spirit of using the arms that I actually used in the project. Uh, a nice, like, rusty orange. And that sort of helped my January blues, like, buying, like, a rusty orange. I think of, like, brighter autumn days, rather than spring days, I was like, hmm, autumn, that's when I will like, look forward to wearing this jumper. Mm. Um, so I'm really pleased with that. Great pattern, by the way. Hey, no worries, shout out to you. <laughs> also, to finish up, I have quite a list of projects here. Um, I've been working on a snowdrift shawl, which is, of course, from Knits About Winter by Emily Ferdinand. And it's a great project because it's less prescribed than some. Now, you know, sometimes you need like the guidance of a step-by-step, mm-hmm. but there's an element of... Um, improvisation. Improvisation, yeah. I was going to say probability, but I don't know if that's... <laughs> possibility. Possibility. Um, it's Adaptability. Quite... <laughs> <laughs> the Taurus Hour on the podcast. Because you use lots of different strands of mohair and lots of different colours, and Emily kind of says, well, just... Pop in colours, like purple play around combinations, and I'm enjoying that more intuitive nature of knitting rather than a prescribed set stripe section. So I'm mm. having fun with that, and it's very squishy and large, and uh, that's what I want from a shawl. So I'm pretty happy. It is looking great as well. Sophie showed me earlier, and it's um, the co- the colours are a little little jazzier than the original. Yeah, but... I kind of went for pastels, but then putting them all together. Kind of more like sugary pastels. Anyway, if you want to see uh, a visual format of all the audio things we talk about here, mm-hmm. you can find uh, details on the Pom Pom blog where we'll have the show notes, uh, details of the patterns we've been working on, and photos, 
Of course, importantly, we referenced lots of things at the beginning of this podcast, which you can find the list for reading lists and other useful links. Of course, we will have that all in the show notes. So to talk more about wool, as if we hadn't done that enough already, we're going to hand over to Megan Fernandez, our US correspondent and co-founder <laughs> of PomPom, who is uh, in the States in the Pom office and uh, is doing our interview for this episode. Yeah, so Megan is going to talk to Carita Collins from Neighbourhood Fibre Co., whose yarn you may recognise from, wait, issue 28 of PomPom. We used uh, Neighbourhood Fibre Co. for the Sweet Fern hat which features a beautiful brioche uh, kind of fern motif. Um, but yes, so over to Megan. This is Megan, one of the co-editors of Pom Pom, and I am coming to you today from Austin, Texas, where currently South by Southwest is in full swing, and I am regularly seeing bands being interviewed as I walk down the street. Um, And today I'm super lucky to be doing the Knitting World equivalent, and I've got Carita Collins of Neighborhood Fiber Company on the line. Carita founded her hand-dyed yarn company over a decade ago in her basement apartment in Washington, D.C., and since then has grown her business enormously. Her yarn can be found at local yarn stores all over the United States, including her own studio store in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, And I've personally long admired Karita, not only for her talents as a hand dyer, but also for her leadership as a businesswoman who has had the courage to be publicly political and make the issues she cares about an integral part of her company. Welcome, Karita. I am glad to be here, and thank you for that introduction. No problem. Um, I actually grew up in the suburbs of Washington. Um, and Okay, I, which one? Um, I'm from Fairfax County, so um, way okay. out in the suburbs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I Sometimes for people far away, I say I'm from D.C., but I actually have no idea what it's like to live in the city. I'm definitely from the suburbs. But um, I remember a long time ago, I uh, visited... Um, my parents and I went to Fiberspace where I came across your yarn for the first time. Yes. And this was a really long time ago. Um, and I felt like the indie dyeing thing was just starting to explode onto the knitting scene. Um, so it seems kind of likely to me that you, when you started, there weren't a lot of businesses like yours around. So I'd love it if you could tell, me a, little, tell me a little bit about that and like how you got started. Yeah, sure. So I was living in DC, working at a yarn store that is no longer in business mm-hmm. and just kind of, I had just finished my master's degree. So I was sitting on top of two degrees that I wasn't using. I, I was in the exact same really position once. <laughs> Yeah, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh And I felt like I had to do something, but it wasn't just enough to be sort of working. I felt like I had had to, like, be doing something important. Um, And I decided I wanted a yarn business. And I knew I could not afford to open a yarn store, especially not in D.C. I did not have that kind of cash. Mm -hmm. So people were sort of... You know, getting started opening yarn companies of their own, like hand dyers were all on Etsy and we were all kind of just getting started. And 
I decided that I could do that, even though I hadn't ever dyed yarn before. <laughs> I just decided I can, I have a pretty good sense of color. This will, I will teach myself the rest of it and it'll be fine. It's that amazing confidence that you only have when you're 25. Yep. Yeah. So I just did it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. It'll be fine. <laughs> like Everything will work out great. Yeah. I was super, I was not risk averse. Um, mm -hmm. Other people probably still think I'm not risk averse, but, <laughs> you know, I'm certainly a lot more cautious than I was back then uh -huh. when I was just like, yeah, sure. I'm just going to do this thing. Um, I borrowed a thousand dollars from my mom because that's how we open businesses in America. Mm -hmm. We borrow money from our parents yep. if we're lucky. And, you know, I feel like she did it mostly just to sort of indulge me because I was feeling bad because I wasn't doing anything like mm -hmm. I'm making air quotes that you can't see, but you know, I was just, <laughs> yeah. like working my, you're figuring yourself out fifth or sixth retail job. Yeah, yeah. Which at the time I felt like such a failure because yeah. I hadn't figured myself out already because you were supposed to do that in college. Yeah. I mean, we started pom pom in almost the same exact way, working at a yarn store, sitting on two degrees not knowing what we were doing yeah. with our lives <laughs> and having no experience doing it either. So we can totally relate. Um, and eventually it turns into something great because you keep working at it. Even if, you know, for me, it was, I continued to work at it, even though it was very clearly not working. Um, <laughs> but I was too stubborn to say, you know what, this isn't working. I should just walk away. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness you were stubborn. So um, tell me about what you had studied and has that informed your your career now at all well sort of um I came into I went to George Washington University in Washington DC mm -hmm. with the idea that I was going to become a lawyer with an international focus so I was getting a degree in international affairs and I started taking all the political science classes and the econ classes and you know DC is a very um a unique kind of environment everybody there is very much into politics mm -hmm. and not in a necessarily grassroots activist kind of way more in a bureaucrat everyone's trying to hustle a job kind of way right and I just didn't like it I didn't like my classes I didn't like the people who were in them I didn't feel like they cared about the same things that I cared about I had a couple of seriously, like, old, curmudgeonly white dudes yeah. who were professors of history and, and economics, and they really turned me off of the whole program because they were so obviously not open to ideas about other cultures, mm -hmm. other countries, and were very much into the sort of Western Hemisphere supremacy narrative. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I ended up focusing on American, on um, Latin America as my concentration and getting a minor in English because I took so many humanities classes. Mm -hmm. I took a lot of anthropology classes too. I just realized that, well, so I figured I'm, I'm going to finish this degree, right? Because I'm already <laughs> in it. Yeah. And I just really wanted to focus on people more than institutions and governments and for me that my interest in those things was only about people so I finished my degree and then I decided I was going to get a PhD and I took a year to work 
and I actually got a job at GW. So I got a full-time job at the university, and I spent the year after graduating applying to PhD programs, and I got rejected from every single one of them. <laughs> I feel like success stories often start with rejection stories. Yeah, I mean, I was, it was a major fail, and I always felt like this, like this was my identity. I am, I am going to be an academic, mm-hmm. and so it was really... It hit me really hard, and I had applied at GW for the American Studies program, and they actually didn't outright reject me. They offered me admission, but with no financial aid, which is like a rejection for a PhD program. Yeah. So I talked to the um, chair of the department, and uh, we decided that I should come in as a master's degree candidate, which was, I felt like it was their way of throwing me a bone and it was really nice. And it let me sort of hold on to this idea that, that I had a future in academia, which turned out to not be true. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed the program. I, I enjoyed reading books and talking about them with other people who were really interested in these subjects, like in like real minute ways, like let's spend a, you know, three hours discussing this one obscure piece of folklore. I was totally into that. Um, <laughs> yes. But, um, and you know, I did an intro somebody who was creating a program of study for, um, a program of study for students in China who were taking American studies. Wow. And that was really wild and kind of weird. And I, you know, I did all the reading and, and I just realized kind of, midway through that I'd rather be knitting. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. I was knitting through all of my classes. Um, It was just a normal thing for a lecture class for me to have my knitting out. Everyone expected it. Yeah. And I would finish like just a basic beanie hat, but basically one of those a week. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Because, you know, you can do stockinette stitch in the round without really looking. And knitting became such a big part of what I was doing and what I enjoyed Mm -hmm. and I just wanted to hurry up and finish and get done with this school thing so that I could go work at the yarn store (laughs) um, yeah and just knit more and that's what happened and what year was this this was oh gosh let's see so uh this was like 2006 okay yeah I had all these plans I started working at the yarn store and then I that summer I decided to start Neighborhood Fiber Company because I had this great idea for colors named after neighborhoods. And that wasn't any like anything else that was out there. And, you know, I had been, I hadn't really been in the industry. I didn't know how to run a business or how to, you know, how to run a yarn business. I wasn't someone who was, you know, a regular at stitches Vogue Knitting Live didn't exist then. Like, yeah. I think I'd been to the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival once, and that was it. But I just felt like I was like I had something to offer. Like, I'm going to bring something unique to this industry based on what I've read on the Internet. What did you think <laughs> that was, was unique that you were going to bring? You know, again, with the sort of confidence that only comes from being this, this young uh-huh. and not having ever failed, really. Yeah. I just was so sure that my particular aesthetic and my sense of color was something that nobody else was doing. And it's true. It was something that I couldn't find in the yarn store where I worked. And 
it wasn't anything that I was seeing, you know, in the in the blogs online and when I was poking around Etsy shops, it was it felt like something unique. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of your colors, if, if I were to describe like your um, aesthetic, I think I would say sort of more saturated colors. And I know that you've said before that um, your colors are inspired by the neighborhood. So like urban landscapes, whereas a lot of yarn companies, you know, are more inspired by nature. You, would you say that that's true? Definitely. Um, when I started, it was, well, so again, it was 2006. So mm-hmm. we didn't have like yarn, as many indie, indie dyers and small yarn companies. It just didn't exist. It yeah. was like, like the dyed yarn we had in the store was Koigu, yeah. I think. And that was, that was, and like Manos del Uruguay. And yeah. that was it. Yeah. And Koigu so, is like rural Canada and you're there in Washington, DC, which is like a totally different landscape. Yeah. I mean, I didn't understand this whole, like everything was named for like flowers and there was nothing wrong with that. Or it just didn't, it didn't feel like it represented me at all. Yeah. And I wanted to bring something new. And it felt especially like being younger, being in a city, being black, like this is something that the industry doesn't have. This is maybe a voice that needs to be heard. It it wasn't like super, like now I feel like my own presence in some ways is political. Yeah. But at the time, I really was just thinking like, here, I can fill this niche because it doesn't, no one's in there. Yeah. No yeah. one's in there doing this. I can do this. I mean, I can totally relate. <laughs> Absolutely. So, okay. So let's see, where are we? You graduated college, you started your business and then you eventually end up in this, uh, sort of artist, um, sort of community in Baltimore. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, after I figured out that I couldn't actually afford to live in D.C. Mm-hmm. and have this business, um, I moved to Ohio for a year, which was like um, mostly just a period of time where I was spectacularly broke all the time <laughs> and right. just trying to figure out a way to make enough money to like off the yarn business to like keep food in my mouth and my utilities turned on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I came to Baltimore, I saw an ad on Craigslist for an apartment building that was specifically for artists and had um, lower rent. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is way too good to be true because the apartments were all new. It was brand new construction. And when I went to the Google um, Street View of the location, it was a vacant lot. So I assumed that it was a scam. Mm Mm-hmm. And that I was going to get down there. And then you call the number and you have to leave a voicemail and they call you back. And I made my appointment and I got in my car and I drove down there thinking, there's no way this is going to be what I want it to be. Right. I am prepared to be disappointed. And instead, it was this brand new building that was full of studio apartments, one bedroom and two bedroom apartments that all were designed with artists in mind. So I rented a studio apartment for half of what I would have paid for a studio apartment in D.C. And it had a utility sink in the dining room, basically. And an expectation that you would be doing, you know, weird stuff in your apartment. Painting or, yeah. Painting. um, There were musicians. We had really terrible soundproofing. Um, (laughs) Right. So it was just part of the community, sort of the accepted community 
vibe was you're going to hear people playing music and it's not going to be some jerk with uh, loudspeakers necessarily. It's, it might be a dude with a guitar and an amp mm-hmm. or you might smell something funny because, you know, somebody is painting with oil paints in their apartment or, you know, boiling wool. <laughs> right. um, I mean, it sounds amazing. Gonna, it was great. I yeah. mean, so I set up like my studio in my apartment and it just meant that I, you know, I didn't have a dining room table. I had a mini dye kitchen and it was perfect. It let me really sort of just focus on my work in a way that was like in a place where I could afford to live and didn't have to devote so much like stress and energy to just surviving, trying to scratch out enough money to feed myself. And because the building was, you know, it was new and it was designed for artists and it was mostly one bedrooms. We were all kind of like in the same age range Almost everybody was new to the area or at least new to like, everyone was new to the apartment building at least. Mm -hmm. So we all, it was like a dorm, but in a good way. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like all of the good stuff about a dorm, but then you could go back to your apartment and not have to interact with a roommate if you didn't want to. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Um, when you hear that like an arts program like that, like a government run arts program like that actually like produces artists that make a living from their work, you know, like it's really wonderful to hear. I, the friends that I made there, like, you know, some of them are still practicing their art. Some of them have sort of are still practicing their art, but are doing it like on the side. One of my friends now, one of my closest friends that I made at, City Arts, that's the apartment building, is now just traveling all over the country doing his artwork, and it's amazing. He has these amazing art quilts that have been in the Baltimore Museum of Art and, you know, at universities around the country, and he got a travel grant and spent a bunch of time in Ghana, and it's just really cool. Awesome. Like, Could you tell us his name? And like, oh, sure. His name is Stephen Towns. Cool. Uh, he is one of the artists for whom we named the new artists lineup of colors that are all named for Baltimore artists. Awesome. And so from there and from those like, you know, kitchen table beginnings, um, you now have like a beautiful studio and shop right um, in Baltimore. Yeah, it's amazing. It's in a historic firehouse. um, One of the first seven firehouses that were built in the city. You know, I, every day I'm kind of amazed that that I that I have this thing, this business that is in this building that is a real business. Like this is a real <laughs> thing. I'm expecting that someone is gonna, you know, is is, is gonna notice that I'm like standing here with my pants off, and, <laughs> you know, that I'm like just waving my hands a lot. And no, and you know, there's nothing really behind me, and then I realize that wait, no, this is real. Yeah, there, are, it's not just me. There are. There are people here who, who work here and come to work every day and use the money they earn here to pay their rent and mortgages. Yeah. This is a real thing. Yeah. I mean, um, I heard in another interview that you did that you said um, you didn't think anyone would take you seriously when you wrote your business plan. And um, Oh, yeah. No, I assumed that no one would. <laughs> and I mean, how much of that do you think was um, to do with it being like a yarn business. Cause I know when I try to explain what, what I do, like running a knitting magazine, they're like, Oh, that's cute. You know, like, Oh, but- for sure. People still definitely do that to me. Part of the reason that we have a storefront 
in the um, in the new space is so that I can direct people to something tangible. Yeah. Like people can understand I own a store that sells a thing. Yeah. <laughs> more than they can understand like so we dye yarn and <laughs> we we send it around the world to mm-hmm. people who knit and crochet and weave. Yeah. For fun. <laughs> and you know, people look at me like I'm crazy or they just sort of are very dismissive of Yeah. Oh, you know, that's cute that you have this little craft business. Yeah. Um, and I want to be like, would you like to see our financials from last year? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is to do with the fact that it's a woman, like a thing that traditionally women have done. Um, and, oh, definitely. And hopefully that's changing a little bit. Um, but well, no, I mean, I, I still go into it expecting people not to take me seriously because, yeah. because I'm a woman, because I'm black, because it's a craft business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I walk into a bank for a loan, I am expecting to be dismissed. Right. And to, to a certain extent, I've internalized so much of that that I'm always, like, surprised when things happen yeah. for me or when people <laughs> are like, hey, you know what? You had a really good year. And I'm yeah. like, oh, did I? I guess I did. Yeah. Maybe. Um, you know, but then... Like when I look at it, I can, and I look at the numbers and not just the numbers really, cause I'm not a numbers person. Yeah. Like when I look at the people who work for me, who work mm-hmm. with me, yeah. um, and realize that we're doing this thing that is not only is it supporting me, but it's supporting other people and their families in a way that is meaningful and significant and not just like pocket money. Yeah. It's, it feels like a really that's when it feels like a really big deal, like a real thing that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I can sort of segue this into the fact that a lot of your work like you've incorporated your sort of firmly held beliefs or your political views, um, into your work. And, um, I really admire that, but as somebody who has also started to do that in my business, you know, Lydia and I run pom pom and we've done it in sort of quiet ways before, but I feel like becoming Mm -hmm. more and more uh, courageous to do it in more overt ways. Having staff or children, because I know you have a, a kid now, it feels like a big risk. And I just want to want to hear how you feel about that, because um, we are supporting people and it does feel risky at times to wade into those political conversations. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, so we were sort of quietly doing that for a while, actually. We so in 2015, uh Freddie Gray was killed or in custody of police officers mm-hmm. in Baltimore. And it set off uh, an event that is called the uprising or the riots, depending on your perspective. But the city was, uh, you know, it was on fire. People were marching in the streets. There were tanks rolling down the streets. It was unrest in the most polite way um, that I, is the most polite way that I can describe it. And it felt like, you know, it feels surreal to look on CNN or MSNBC and see, you know, intersections that you regularly cross and 
to see your own town. And it just felt like I had to do something. And it wasn't just me. The other people who were working with me, all we all had this feeling of wanting to do something, mm-hmm. but not knowing what we could do. And so I, that was the first time we did a color for a cause. And we came out with the colors, the colorway Sandtown Winchester, which is the neighborhood where Freddie Gray was from. And we raised $10,000 for the Baltimore Community Foundation Fund to Rebuild Baltimore. Now, when we started doing, like when we had the plan to do it, it felt like, I really hope we can raise like three grand. Um, (laughs) And the response was so overwhelming that it just blew me away. And in the studio, when we did that, you know, we, because again, it's a small, small business. There were only, I think there were two of us full time. And then we had students working for us other than that, like art students. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking it over and deciding, you know, what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And, you know, choosing the charity that we did was all very deliberate in a way it was planned in a way to be as inoffensive as possible because (laughs) yeah who could object to rebuilding a city that is you know has been destroyed Mm -hmm. now all that said i did still get a couple of emails from people who were not on board with rebuilding a city wow uh that had been destroyed and you know said some really unkind things about the residents of Baltimore. Oh my um, gosh. Wow. And I'm kind of like, why would you send me that email? You know, I live here. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it just felt so good. And so we kind of, and it felt like suddenly there was this, this power that I had discovered that I didn't know I had mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, I can, I can raise money. I forgot that I know how to do that. Um, I actually worked as a fundraiser for a period of time for a nonprofit in D.C. while I had the business, but was really not making any money with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm good at this. I know how to do this. And so we did it a couple more times. And, you know, again, for things that were sort of universally recognized as tragedies on an, you know, on either a national or international level. And we were always very careful to pick you know, things that were, pick causes that were inoffensive, Doctors Without Borders, you know, things that it felt like everyone could get behind. And then the election of 2016 happened and, you know, everything changed. There are some people who wish that it hadn't changed, that, that we could all be more civil, I guess. I was seething. I was so, it wasn't just that I was angry about what happened. It was that it, it, it hurt. It felt like this this tightness in my chest, like there was something that had to get out. And I was getting so tired of reading think pieces and articles and just polite statements where we were all pretending. And, and, you know, in this world where we, in this business are in this business to sell things, to sell a luxury item. I know. Yeah. You know, is that does not impact politics. Um, You know, whether or not I sell more yarn is not going to change healthcare policy. So it just felt like we were all looking at the wrong thing. And, and it just felt like really, I don't know, it just didn't feel right to not be saying something about politics. And when we came out with 
the Unity logo with the yarn ball in the fist, I initially wanted to put it out with, without any words, with just the yarn ball in the fist. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends who owns a yarn store talked me into putting, she's like, you need to put a word on there, something. And I was like, well, I guess Unity. We'll do Unity. And she was like, that's perfect, because otherwise people are going to see the fist and white women are going to be too frightened to buy it because they'll think that it's a black power fist. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I was like, well, okay, maybe. <laughs> but the, you know, and in the end, the unity message, I think, resonated with uh, people in a way that just a fist didn't because we weren't at the point where everything was resist. Right. You know, this was still like, yeah. We weren't as right before the women's march. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we came out with that logo and we we put it on a long sleeved hooded T shirt, and that was really specific and specifically chosen for me because of the hood and you know what it means to be walking around with a hood on yeah. if you are a young black person. Mm-hmm. So because I'm also in addition to having my my baby who is a year old I'm also raising my younger brother who's 15 so and I've had him living with me since he was 11 so I've you know suddenly found myself raising this young black man in this city you know a young black man died in the custody of the police for me doing that felt like this it felt like an explosion of something like in my chest that just had to get out but we had a big meeting about it we had before we came out with the unity logo on a t-shirt we we all sat down and this is me and like three other people, some of whom were like, one of whom I think was an intern. Mm-hmm. So, but we all sat down and I was like, so this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going to do. I need to know that I have your support because if this blows up in my face, it blows up in your face too. Right. And you work here. So I want everyone to know that if they are not comfortable with this, I'm not going to do this without everyone's support. And everyone was like, yes, let's do this. Awesome. Like, let's go. Yeah. We're going to do this. And that's it. I mean, every, once that happened, it was just like, it felt like I let a piece of myself out. And then once I could, once I did that, I couldn't shut the door again. Like pieces of my like actual personal feelings about politics and not just politics, but like the way that we as human beings should treat each other the sort of what what we owe to society and what society owes to us all of that just started leaking out it was like it was like I couldn't grab it and put it back yeah it just kept falling out all over the place and most of my customers were really supportive and I I met a lot of people who were impressed that we had taken a stand and done it so early yeah um I did lose customers but I was kind of like, you know, I think I'm okay without having you as a part of my community because it's not just about, like, what we do isn't just selling yarn or, in your case, selling magazines. It's not just, like, it is that, but it's more than that because this is a community. And I think that's what we've been sort of finding out recently with the current discussions about racism and inclusivity and what it means to really be inclusive. Yeah. Because we are a community and yeah, it's not just, you know, this isn't a bunch of different people selling on Amazon. This is, this is a a group of, a large group of people who all feel connected to one another. So it matters. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
part of the beauty of this community is that you know where your yarn comes from and you know the person that has dyed your yarn or, you know, uh, designed your knitting pattern. It's, it is very much about the people behind the businesses. And so I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it just, you know, you sort of fulfilled your own prophecy by calling your company neighborhood fiber company and having that sense of community, like sort of built into the name from the beginning. It just seems to have like been something that was there, you know, all along. And that finally, as you said, came out. Um, tell me, tell me how you've been feeling over the past couple of months, uh, with all of the conversation about diversity and inclusivity. Um, on social media, um, what, what have, what have you been going through as somebody in the business? It's been challenging for me to, to, well, first of all, it's been challenging because I am old and <laughs> am not interested in, or initially was not interested in following all of this business happening on Instagram because I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I grew up with Facebook <laughs> hard. Yeah. Like I was, I was out of college when Facebook came out. Yeah. So I'm like, you you want me to learn another social media? Is this going to be like Snapchat where it's gone <laughs> before yeah. I can figure out what it does? Yeah. Um, so I was only kind of just starting to get into the rhythm of Instagram when all of this kind of popped off. And, you know, it it became like a... At first, it was very much like I was trying to wade through a whole bunch of information to try and get to the root of a narrative. Like, yeah. you know, it wasn't like anything was laid out in bullet points. Like, here is the story that and how it has happened. Well, actually, that um, does no exist. Done that. Yeah, it, it does exist um, on Ravelry. Um, and maybe we'll put it in the show notes in case anybody who's listening has no idea what we're talking about. Um, well, but- yeah, so <laughs> that and now it exists, which yeah. is great. Yeah, because- but at the beginning, it did not. Yeah. For sure. At the beginning, it was like, I got a message from somebody that's like, you have to see what's happening on Instagram. All of a sudden, we're talking about racism. And I was like, what? what is this? <laughs> you know, initially, I was excited to see that this conversation was happening, but I didn't actually expect anything tangible to come out of it. I was expecting, uh, I, I did not expect much. I thought that everyone would make statements about their commitment to inclusion and diversity and in opposition of racism, and then it would go away and everyone would be back to business as usual. What has been so amazing is that there are people involved in this conversation who will not let that happen. Yeah. And that's what's so great about Instagram, because it lets these voices continue to be heard in a way that wouldn't necessarily be true if this were something that happened and were picked and if, it, and it was like, you know, picked up by a newspaper or something. Yeah. And because then someone else is controlling the discourse and this is 100% participant driven. It's one of the things that I love about Ravelry too. It's driven by the participants. There are community guidelines, of course, Mm -hmm. but a topic can't die just because somebody takes it down. There are all these people who I didn't know about, who I didn't know of, who are mostly younger (laughs) than I am, which is refreshing and exciting. And it's great to see people who don't have, who are not letting the sort of the fatigue that comes with being an activist, they're not letting that stop them from continuing this conversation and continuing to 
to be voices that are problematic, to be continuing to be a thorn in the side of people who would like to let things just go back to normal, to quietly get back to our craft. I love that. I think it's great. I want to do everything I can to support them. You know, it's uh, it has been challenging for me because most of the voices who are the loudest are not people who have businesses. Right. So when I did an interview for a blog and I said that I don't think it's the responsibility of people of color to educate white people and that white people came up with racism so they should fix it. I felt like I was taking a big risk and it felt yeah. really scary to say something like that. And honestly, if the interviewer had caught me on a day where I was not so frazzled, I probably <laughs> wouldn't have said it. I probably would have censored myself. But in the end, I felt good about saying it. And, you know, it's the same thing that happened in 2016, like a little bit of it trickles out. And, you know, in the end, it always feels better to let something out than it does to hold it in. Yeah, I agree. And it's nice to be in a place now where we can say a little bit more about this because there are more people, there's more voices to lend support to those to those things. Right. And I think you Instagram don't feel so much like you're on a limb alone. Yeah. And I think Instagram provided that sort of Absolutely. platform. Yeah. Um, cause I, I think that there has been some criticism of it happening on Instagram, but I really don't, I personally don't see anywhere else that it, that it could have happened. Um, I mean, I think this is just the way it's, it's the evolution of media and the evolution of, you know, the way that people communicate. This is how it's happening because this is, this is where everything is happening. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you said before about, you know, it just, you know, we're just yarn companies or yarn businesses. Um, you know, like how does that relate to like the bigger, you know, like the Freddie Gray situations and, you know, like the really big picture stuff. But I think, you know, by, by making your business political, you know, it does, we do have to start in smaller ways so that things like our communities, like our knitting community, you know, fosters the kind of change that we want to see in, in the larger world, perhaps. And I, and I don't know if you can relate to that at all, or if you think that that, that, that might be true, but I think I see that your actions, you know, however small they might seem in comparison to, to the really big problems, I think they do have an effect on what happens in the world. Well, I have to believe that it means something. Otherwise yeah. it makes it feel really like a lot of work. For <laughs> I mean, $10,000 so. $10, raise is not nothing. I mean, I, you know, like that's not nothing at all. And so I think that does, that does, um, sort of, um, you know, yeah, illustrate I mean, the power of, you know, like, yeah. And, and we've made, um, you know, as the time has gone by, we've been really, we've done so many of them and it's gotten so kind of, it's gotten, it, we began doing those kinds of fundraising initiatives so often that I kind of had to take a step back and look at, you know, what we were going to do for 2019. And one of the things I figured out is that $10,000 is, it is objectively a lot of money, <laughs> but for some organizations, it's a lot more than it would be for others. Right. So we are like, right now we're focusing on working with the Baltimore Youth Arts Organization and uh, as a sort of concentrated local initiative. So we are, because it's, um, you know, it's an after-school program for kids to do art, do art projects, and then they are able to sell their artwork and, you know, um, 
collect the money from it. Mm -hmm. So they're able to earn money and they're able to do something after school that's productive. And, you know, some of them get to learn about different kinds of art and decide whether or not maybe they want to go to art school. And some of them get to learn about entrepreneurship. So it's a much more focused way for us to do it instead Mm -hmm. of just sort of reacting to every terrible thing. Also, there are so many terrible things. Yes. It becomes, um, like when we choose to highlight one, it feels like we've ignored another one. Right. Well, so last year we gave $11,000 to the, um, to send kids to the March for Our Lives uh-huh. after the Parkland shooting. Wow. And none of it was tax deductible. <laughs> and and <you're>, my yeah. <laughs> accountant really read me the riot act about <laughs> it. Um, and then he looked at our tax deductible donations and said that they were, you know, compared to our profit margins, that they were so large that they didn't help us at all. Oh, well. <laughs> in terms of taxes, yeah. which isn't the reason we did it, but yeah. it still felt like he was wagging his finger at me. And as we look forward, um, as I look forward for the business in terms of like trying to buy our building and do yeah. stuff like that, I'm like, okay, I do have to be a little more. Yeah, so that you can Thoughtful. continue to make charitable donations in the future. Right, <laughs> You're right. to keep the business right. going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it makes a lot of sense um, to start with youth, you know, if we're talking about, like, accessibility to, uh, or just interest in the arts or knitting or creative things, you know, starting with with youth makes a lot of sense and investing in them makes a lot of sense. Um so that, you know, when we're talking about representation and inclusivity in like our own arts community, um, that kids yeah. feel, feel like, you know, that that was open to them from a young age. Well, and it's really cool because um, so they we did a big workshop with around 20 kids and they came to the studio and we worked with them to shibori dye a bunch of silk scarves. And so we kept like half of them and they took half of them and we're going to, we're listing our half online and then all of the money from them goes straight to the organization and the kids. So they get to make something and sell it. That's amazing. It's, and the, and the scarves are really nice. Like a couple of them I pulled out and I was like, who did this one? We need to call them up and, and get them in here for internship. Can people buy these scarves? Well, they're on sale in our store for the local folks, but they will be online next week. Awesome. Okay. Amazing. Um, So we'll definitely put up a link to that um, in the show notes. I will send it to you. Awesome. Great. Um, Well, I think we're almost out of time, but it's been amazing having this conversation with you. Um, I'm sure we could go on for hours. Absolutely. This has been so much fun. Yeah. But, um, why don't you, for our listeners, just give us your Instagram handle and your website so that they can find you really easily. Okay. So our Instagram handle is neighborhood fiber co. And we have a Ravelry group also under Neighborhood Fiber Co. Same with Facebook. And our website is neighborhoodfiberco.com. And for international folks, that is Neighborhood spelled the American way, N-E-I-G-H-B-O-R-H-O-O-D. And Fiber is spelled the American way too. Oh, right. Also, (laughs) Fiber, yes. F-I-B-E-R. 
Um, that, you get really, people really confused. I know. That. Well, I mean, it's a good thing that I have lived uh, <laughs> in the UK and here. I'm right, right, on, right on top of those things. But um, thank you so much. It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. I hope everybody will check out the links. I'm really excited about those scarves. And, oh, they're so good. They're yeah, so pretty. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Karita. Thank you. hand you back to Lydia and Sophie. I am lucky enough to be able to review a skein of Neighborhood Fiber Company's gorgeous rustic fingering. This is the yarn used for the really beautiful sweet fern hat from our spring issue. The hat is a mix of a kind of leafy brioche pattern with garter stitch in two different colors and it's really stunning. The yarn base is a single ply fingering weight which gives it that rustic look and feel not having that super shiny look that some super wash yarns can have. So I didn't have uh, I mean I didn't watch the yarn for the sweet fern pattern because I think we can all just go and look at how gorgeous the yarn is up in that pattern. I decided to do one stockinette swatch and one granny square swatch. The colorway the folks at Neighborhood Fiber Company sent me is called Alice Gadzinski, and it's named for a Baltimore artist and is from a collection of colors inspired all by Baltimore artists, um, which I think is a really brilliant idea. There are some really stunning colors from the series, but this one really stands out. It's definitely the boldest of the colors in the series, and I did a little research into the artist and I can totally see why. She uses a lot of found vintage objects and is inspired by kitsch 60s culture. So there's a lot of pink and yellow, just really bright. The colorway is pretty variegated, which isn't something that I have been drawn to recently, but I have seen a lot of patterns that make really excellent use of variegateds mixed with solids, kind of like the sweet burn hat. Um, and I think that's really effective. I love the way the stockinette swatch knit up. I knit it on a um, four millimeter or US six needle, so kind of loose. But of course the colors will differently depending on how long the rows are in a project that you're making. So um, my colors stacked up really beautifully in my four by four inch swatch, but I think the colors will sort of be more subtly placed next to each other the longer the rows in the project that you're making. I have to say I am really, really in love with how this colorway works up in a granny square. Something about the formation of the stitches and how the colors blend works amazingly well. And the colors take on a kind of jewel-like appearance and they radiate from the center of the granny square outwards. I would love to see the squares worked up together as a really lightweight blanket or even better, kind of loose, big shawl, maybe even with a solid black border thrown in, something like that. Um, if you don't crochet yet or only crochet a little bit yet, I would definitely recommend that you get yourself into it. Summer, spring and summer are a great time to do that. And we have no fewer than three crochet patterns in our new issue. So don't let it scare you. The girls in the office will tell you I'm a crochet evangelist. I do really love to crochet. It's not that scary. So go for it. All in all, I can safely say I adore the yarn, adore the color, and the idea behind the artist series. Lucky for all of you, we have a giveaway of this really lovely yarn in the colors used for the Sweet Fern hat, which is by Liza Laird and Kate Madden. The colors are Edgewood and Mount Vernon. Edgewood is a really gorgeous teal and Mount Vernon is a kind of semi-solid neutral. So we'll put in the show notes how you can win. And of course I will put in photos of the swatches that I worked up so you can see. I'm really excited to show off that granny square. Thanks 
Lydia and Sophie for letting me drone on for this long and to Corita at Neighborhood Fiber Company for the amazing chat and the absolutely gorgeous yarn. Thanks. Do you feel worried? A little. Or nervous? Uh, that something's about to happen? Yes. You might be on tenterhooks. I am on tenterhooks. How did you know? Well, tenterhooks uh, is the word we're looking at for textiles. If you haven't come across this segment before, we are looking at cloth, textile, wool-based idioms, and uh, unpicking this rich seam of uh, words. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let me tell you about tenterhooks. Maybe you were on tenterhooks all morning, waiting for the phone to ring. Maybe I was. Maybe you've been on Tenterhooks since the beginning of January, waiting for the next Comcast episode, and here it is. <laughs> well, Tenterhooks uh, are not connected with tents. What? From my extensive research. They're not Tenterhooks. Uh, nor are they the hooks used by butchers, which is the common misspelling of Tenderhooks. Uh, so, none of that. Whatever, think of everything you know about tents. <laughs> so, a tenter is a wooden frame which is often in the form of a line of fencing. And this was used to hang woolen or linen cloths to prevent it from shrinking as it dries. So we all know if you've washed something and it's uh, felted or fulled, obviously it gets a lot smaller. So by stretching it out, you can wash something and then maintain its size. And the tenter hooks are the hooks on the tenter that hold the cloth in place. Well, I never. There we go. And it's uh, you can see how this expression on tenter hooks with the idea of painful tension uh, is derived from the idea of tenting or stretching fabric. Yes. Yes. Uh, there you go. I didn't know that had a fibre root. That yeah. yeah, that's what textile is all about. Yeah. <laughs> Diving into that bag of fibre and coming up with a nugget of golden fleece. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Greek myths recently. So, <laughs> um, so that was uh, textiles. Well, I now believe. time to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast and getting all the way to nearly the end this amazing community of podcasts out there we love being part of your your crafting life like listening to us i still find it completely bizarre when people come up and <laughs> tell me they listen to us because again as we've mentioned we're often in a room alone uh recording all these things putting these things together and so yeah i take this moment to say I mean, both words everyone who's come and talked to us about the podcast and uh, sent us messages yeah. and interacted or, or even if you haven't done any of those things and yeah. you just listened at home which is you know pretty much what podcasts are for uh, we're so grateful and honoured to be part of your part of your lives indeed yeah 
And, you know, when we started the podcast five years ago, yeah, nearly six, Pom Pom was um, still a a fledgling magazine in many ways. And uh, we had a different set of commitments. And, you know, as Pom Pom has grown, it's, it's been more and more difficult for us to balance making this podcast with our day jobs and other life-related commitments. So it goes without saying, it's something that we love making. We love making the podcast, and it's not going away. But because uh, <laughs> we, oh, maybe you're listening, you're thinking, "What's this building up to?" But it's um, we've taken some time, especially with the new year. Um, you know, thinking about how. Uh, everything works and the commitments we have in our life uh, and life doing that thing of pulling in as many directions um, we've decided to take a little break uh, a podcast sabbatical if you will uh, just to gather our energy we can our goals for the podcast um, and we think yeah the best way to do that right now is just to have a little pause hmm, exactly like just hit pause just for a while you know we we want to make a great great podcast and you know we just need a little bit of time to think and reflect and you know once we've had that time we can come back we are you know yeah we feel good about coming back with podcast 2.0 which would be better than you've ever heard it yep um of course again thanks for listening and uh, this like little break is a time for you to yeah, get in touch maybe you haven't before like Olivia said and maybe now is your time to get in touch for like another thing this bit of the podcast i think you should do more of this or Things that you think you should research, or stuff you'd like us to be more involved in with something in the podcast. Um, also, what a great time to listen to the back catalogue, just for a shout That's <laughs> true. That's what I'm going to do, like, with the month, all this time that I now have, I'm uh, just going to listen to the entire back catalogue from the beginning. <laughs> and really analyse our podcastingness. <laughs> While we take this sabbatical, which we expect to be um, possibly till the end of this summer, mm-hmm. but you know, we'll keep you updated. Um, we are going to create a list of podcasts that you can listen to to uh, fill the the podcast shape yeah. So once you listen to that cover, obviously, oh, yeah. we encourage you to uh, find new podcasts. And uh, yeah, like I said, we compiled a fun list on the blog uh, for some avenues for you to wander down. And you know, we've done our top three podcasts before. So for example, it's worth going back in. Yeah, we'll put a link to which episode that was from. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So, so again, thank you for, thank you all for listening, for uh, pledging your allegiance as Pomcats. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you can always, if you're needing your daily fix of Pom uh, Pom news, there's uh, all the social media. Uh, you can find us at Pom Pom Mag, our blog, and the Portly Magazine, of course, that will yeah. still be going, <laughs> and all the wonderful books and publications and lovely things we do. But yeah, just a little pause, and uh, we thank you guys for understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we need this little break just to rest off vocal cords, I guess. Indeed, indeed. All right, so now we move on to our longest running yeah. and possibly most beloved segment, which I don't know how I feel about it because on the one hand, I feel very positive that people like us listing things, but on the other hand... <laughs> it's a little unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't go through that whole thing of like podcast pause, but no top three. So here we end with top three <laughs> and uh, in the spirit of the new year, we're leaving you with our resolutions, um, things that we're going to manifest now in this pause of the podcast, <laughs> um, our positive uh, aims uh, of what we're going to do to get better or be involved more in. Indeed. So, um, Probably known as a resolution. Yeah, so, you know, it might be the beginning of March, but hey. Hey, so March already. 
But hey, so um, we've decided to come up with two knit illusions, mm-hmm. guess what they're about, mm-hmm. and one um, more traditional resolution that does not have to be knitting related. My two knit illusions are, well, one of them is one that I've made before, but I hope that by continuing to make this same pledge, I will eventually actually do it. Who knows? Um, it is to get better at, and then to do more colour work. Excellent. So I plan to, um, I need to finally learn how to throw with my right hand rather okay. than the picking that I do. I hold the yarn in my left hand, also known as continental style. Um, and I've tried to do colour work by holding two yarns with that hand, but it just, because of the way I knit, it's just not going to happen. So I think the best thing to do is to learn to throw effectively, to hold the yarn properly, um, well, not properly, but in a way that allows me to uh, to knit in a smooth and effective manner, and I'll be able to hold one yarn in each hand, and colour in each hand, and then do colour work. Very exciting, yeah. I mean, it's basically going to be a bit like learning to knit again, although made easier by the fact that I understand how knitting works. So, you know, I feel like it's not an impossible task. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. And the other knit illusion is to be... Uh, to do more research and think more about the provenance of the yarn uh, that I use, where the fibre's from, how it's been processed, how it's been dyed. You know, not necessarily to cut certain things out even, but just to be mindful of uh, yeah, of, of where and how things came to be in my possession. Um, yeah, I think partially just to be better educated, because I realised I don't always know that much about the processes behind the, the yarns I use. Um, and then, yeah, pe- perhaps through my better education, I will make uh, not necessarily better choices, but different choices, um, and maybe even use like a, a better variety of things. I don't know. And that's always exciting to discover new yarns. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I hope that it widens my my pool of yarn, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Lastly, my uh, regular knitting, not resolution, resolution. Yeah, I'd like to read more anyway. But specifically, I will will be seeking out books by authors from my more diverse backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, um, In fact, I found some good lists of of books that match this description, which I will uh, add to our blog post in case anyone else is interested. Yeah, I think I should add that onto my resolution as like a three and a half, like an extra (laughs) resolution. Well, excellent. All right. Uh, well, one of my new solutions is to make better notes about my knitting. Mm-hmm. Um, I've recently had a, a burst of enthusiasm in finishing a lot of projects. And, um, you know, sometimes you get to a project and you're not feeling, you put it down for a little bit, but then you come back and you're like, why was I using these needles? And I seem to have done something funky with this needle that I did. always happens to me. I think that's fine. I can do that. But, uh, important to sort of take better notes. And then I think, uh, you know, we love that Ravelry and the fact that Ravelry is that user-driven content of people uploading their own projects. I think I, uh, I always love reading people's notes about their knits. So I think in, uh, you know, my step is to make sure I write more effective notes. Mm, be more of a contributor. Right, yeah. yeah I'm yeah. a bit of a lurker in that respect. Okay, right. <laughs> I just lurk around. <laughs> uh, and within that, I think, like, taking better photos of my knits and sort of documenting them in that way, I think, um, is my new solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, new solution two is... Um, using up more of my scraps for baby projects. <gasps> it's a lot of fun, like, using, like, little odds and ends to do, like, fun striking things. Because I feel like with the baby niche, you can go a little bit wilder on the colour combos. I'd agree. 
Uh, and then, of course, there's the warm fuzzies as their gift. <laughs> the baby things. Two babies. <laughs> um, a lot of people I know are having babies, so it's like, you know, I feel this, this flame within me is ignited to make the tiny things. It's so quick! It's so quick! So, I'm having a lot of joy doing that. My one regular, I'm also going to borrow your reading books by mm -hmm. authors of a more diverse background. Other regular knit illusion is to move a bit more. Um, do you like to move it, move it? I like to move it, move it. Mm -hmm. I like to move it. Um, but I need to move it more. So, my resolution is to do one more piece of movement each week. <laughs> In the form of some exercise. Not just more knitting. Oh, yeah. I do a lot of knitting, but I think I always feel better after I've done a bit of movement. And I think, you know, it's always good to move. <laughs> I'm trying to be careful. I'm not being like, oh, I need to, like, lose weight or, like, get like this. And I think the new year can bring a lot of that. Mm. I think being able to, like, get out and there's a really beautiful park near me and I don't do enough to, like, just even walk around it or jog around it. So I think getting out and sort of having that uh, next level of one piece of exercise, time yeah. measured. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's weird that the focus on exercise has been about the way you look, whereas, mm. you know, the way you feel, if it makes you feel good, makes you feel, like, stronger or happier mm -hmm. or more connected to nature or whatever, Yeah, that's... That's the the good thing to focus on. Definitely. So that is my resolution. Mm. Maybe I'll buy that one too. Yeah, that's mm. good. So thank you for listening. This feels a, a more official send-off for a little while as we pause on the podcast. Um, can we repeat it again? Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Whether this is your first time listening or whether you've listened right from the very start. Folks will be the first time like <laughs> podcast. Oh dear. Uh, but we'll be back certainly. We will be back and we will be better than ever. Yep. Because you know, think about how great you feel after a night's sleep. A really good sleep, you wake up, it's a new day, so many possibilities, new ideas. Through the night your brain has made cool connections because you've given it a chance to rest. Indeed. And that's what we're doing. So look after each other and uh, good knitting. Goodbye. <laughs> and we love you. Bye. Comcast is produced by Lydia Gluck and Sophie Scott, with lots of help from Eli Block, who created the original music for this show. Thanks as always to Megan Fernandez, co-creator and editor of Pom Pom Quarterly. Thanks to our sponsors and interviewee Karida Collins from Neighbourhood Fiberco. You can buy your copy of the magazine and subscribe too at our online shop, pompomag.com forward slash shop. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and why not leave a review. Send any feedback or ideas to podcasts at pompommag.com. And don't forget to keep in touch with us via the podcast group and the Pompom Ravelry Forum. Even though we're pausing, we'll still be chatting.